We return to our message series based on what book? You've read it, right? A few times. Good, good. And our series is called, you know that? Just so you know. Just so you know. Now, what that's referring to is just so you know that you're truly saved, that you're born again. These messages are intended to confirm faith. To offer assurance about salvation. Take out your brochure and you can see, uh, you know, it has several panels. The outline is the first two two pages you fill out today. Discussion guide is for you to use this week uh, to review what we learned. And then the back panel is to prepare for next week's message. We all do that? Keep coming. Keep on stepping forward so we can grow together. The theme verse for this whole series is the first verse, 1 John 5, 13. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We have to examine our lives to discover evidence of genuine salvation. And again, sometimes culturally, even in church culture, people say, well, that's personal, that's private. No one should ever challenge your salvation. That's not what the Scripture says. In fact, here's another verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. There's not a confusion about that, is there? Examine yourself To see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves, it says. So today's message could be seen as a doctrinal test. Doctrine just means a set of beliefs. Today's message is a doctrinal test focused on what I believe. Now believing these facts doesn't ensure salvation. Unfortunately, American Christianity has boiled down being saved and born again to just acknowledging a few facts. Almost just not disputing them. But 1 John says a lot more than that. So believing these facts doesn't ensure salvation. But these facts are necessary for salvation. Does that make sense? So we're going to look at evidence for eternal life from 1 John regarding beliefs. And what you'll see is that I'm synthesizing some subjects. So I'm actually preaching this series topically. Those, how many of y'all read 1 John? You, well, you saw that it was kind of circular, wasn't it? It was a bit repetitive thematically. So rather than preaching chapter 1, followed by chapter 2, followed by chapter 3, I'm preaching the different subjects topically. So what we'll do is we'll scan throughout the book in every message in this series. But today we're going to see those things, those beliefs that evidence eternal life. And the first is that eternal life is evidenced by believing that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and the source of of eternal life. Now the word incarnate isn't a biblical word. It's a theological word that actually comes from Latin. But what it means is to make flesh. And what it what it means literally is that Jesus, a divine spirit, became a human man. First John 1 1, we begin there and we'll be in First John all morning. In fact the whole series. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. That beginning is the pre-dawn of time. Jesus existed as a part of the Trinity before he was ever born as a man. Now some theologians believe that he appeared several times in the scripture. But he's called the angel of God. Not an angel of God. But where the angel of God Believes Many believe that he is a Christophany. You don't have to remember that word. But it's a pre-appearance of Jesus. Because he was part of the Trinity from the beginning of time. And he was born as a man in time. At about A.D. 5. Something about 4 or 5. 
So we continue in 1 John. Whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. That, the, the word translated word is a Greek word logos. And it actually um, is, means divine expression. Jesus was the divine expression of God. He preexisted his human birth. His life on earth was a physical and a historical reality that was witnessed by John and many others. So I don't want you, you know, we've heard this, we've heard these facts so much. Sometimes we can be so familiar with them that we lose just how startling they are. God, a spirit, caused one part of the Trinity of which God is composed to become weak, mortal flesh for us. That ought to be surprising to you if you're thinking about it rightly. 1 John 1, 2. This one who is life itself. See, all, Colossians tells us that it's, it's Jesus that was the creator and that our very lives, you know, biologists are trying to figure everything out. You know, I, was, I listen to these crazy sh- things when I'm going to sleep on Saturday night. And, and this crazy guy was talking about, this scientist, how they're discovering how in a worm, the, 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 uh, the nervous system just came together. And I'm thinking, you have lost your mind. That was my final thought before I went to sleep. But Christ is the creator. And not only did he create you, he holds you together. This is the one who is life itself. And he was revealed to us. And we've seen him. He's not just an apparition. He's not just an invisible spirit. Now he's a man and we can see him. We touched him. We ate with him. We heard him talk. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. There is no other source for eternal life. One source. The way, the truth, and the life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. See, Jesus is eternal life. You can't get it anywhere else. There aren't lots of ways to eternal life. There aren't many passages into the hereafter. You can go into the hereafter, but you can't go into heaven apart from Christ. It's only in relationship with Him that we receive eternal life. Now, we're not urged to believe the gospel merely based on what John wrote. Or what some men, even some disciples said. John tells us that there are three supernatural witnesses as well. In chapter 5, you can flip over there, verse 6. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water. So we see that in his, his, his obedience. God submitted to his own law. And by shedding his blood on the cross, the sacrifice... Not by water only. Okay, who baptized him? Who was what relation to him? Cousin, we we went to a very likely place where Jesus was baptized. You could imagine it. Jordan, and Jordan, the country, was just a little ways over. It it wasn't even a wide place. the, The whole river was no more than here to the soundboard at that point, the Jordan River. Not by water only, but by water and blood. So we see the obedience of the divine man. And the spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. See, the Holy Spirit, and and that's one of the messages in this series, the last one. We'll see the function of the spirit in a Christian. But one of the Spirit's functions is to convince people about Jesus' true identity. 
And when the Spirit reveals it to you, you never lose that awareness. It's undeniable. You can't argue with it anymore because it overcomes you. 1 John 5, 7 through 9. So we have these three witnesses. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about His Son. See, in the Old Testament, if someone made a charge in a court, for example... And they were, they were trying to establish some truth or some accusation. There had to be two or three witnesses. You can see that in Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15. And that principle continued, was carried over into the New Testament. And you can see it even about church discipline, Matthew 18 too. You, you need to have several come together. 2 Corinthians 13.1, you have more than one witness. There had to be more than one witness to Testify against Jesus of committing blasphemy. Now they lied, but there were several men that were rounded up that testified against Jesus. But that principle is still true. It's part of God's law that there needs to be two or three witnesses. And so here, John knows that. He knows he's writing to these Jewish people. So he gives them three witnesses to assure them that this is a truly, legally authenticated identity. That Jesus is God. The Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, it says in Mark 1, just as he was being baptized. And as he was being baptized, the Father spoke from the heavens. And he said, behold, y'all know what he said. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Not everybody could understand it. Mark 1, 10 and 11. So see, these truths are not just our human minds making a decision. There's an inner conviction of the truth of the gospel. It's not something that happens by you as much as it's something that happens to you. It's revealed to you and then it's undeniable. 1 John 5, 10 and 11. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar. Because they don't believe what God has testified about His Son. Now, it it doesn't mean that they're standing up somewhere and saying God's a liar. The very life is declaring God a liar. A life that's resisting the truth of Jesus Christ is a life that's shouting God is a liar. That's the point he's making. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And it is not anywhere else. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son, and I'll say it this way, and who isn't had by him, Does not have life. Have you experienced what I'm describing? One of our ladies this morning said, you know what? Years ago you were preaching this when we were on 14. And she said, I was driving out of the parking lot. And her background, she had grown up in a a denomination. But she really hadn't understood about a personal relationship with Jesus. What that meant. And she said she was at the intersection of Pelham Road. It's actually Batesville there in 14. And the Spirit of God spoke to her. And she knew for the first time the reality of the Son of God. And it's never varied. Have you experienced that inner conviction of the Holy Spirit? That Jesus is the Son of God. You know what I'm talking about? You can't even tell yourself it's not true. And that he is the sole source of eternal life. 
The next belief is that salvation is forgiveness of my sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. We all sin. We inherited a sin nature and we have practiced sin personally. Some of you since this morning. 1 John 1.8 If we claim we have no sin, there's a Greek word, hamartia. We are only fooling ourselves and not living in truth. So this Greek word, you don't need to know the Greek word, but there's a Greek word behind what's translated sin. It literally means missing the mark. Also, losing. Falling short of a goal, particularly a spiritual one. Breaking the law. And we've all done that. I was watching the Olympics. I love the Olympics. You know how much of it I love? All of it. Everything. Every event. I don't like it when the U.S. isn't winning, but otherwise. I... And so Leanne and I, she, she, she tolerated it for a whole week. And so last night I said, hey, you know, I thought it was closing. It's not closing until Sunday. We can, you know, we turn this. And she said, all they're going to do is run around and around and around. That's what they do all the time. I said, I couldn't even process it. So my wife and I watched this lovely movie about mothers and daughters. So anyway, but last week, when I was watching the Olympics, the, the archers were on. Do you remember that? Did you see that? They had these fancy bows with these weights and all. Well, I, I'm a bookworm, and I did some research behind those guys. And those, those bows are, are Genesis bows. They're made by a believer. The archery team is coached by a believer from South Korea. He baptized many of those members And they came to Christ before the competition. And Brady Ellison was one of those who was newly born again that won the silver medal. But the point here is that if you watched it, you know, there was a circle that was 10 and then 9 and then 8. Now, the problem is the competition with the South Koreans was so fierce. If you didn't get a perfect 10 every time, we we lost just by not having, having a couple of shots that weren't 10s. But this missing the mark doesn't even mean getting in that inner circle. It means the geometrically perfect center that's only as big as the pinpoint. To be off a millimeter is sin. That's what this means, missing the mark. No room for error. No room for anything but absolutely dead center all the time. How many of us are accomplishing that? But denying we sin and the related behaviors. We may not say, oh, I never sin. But you know what we do? We minimize the impact and the importance, the heinousness of our sins. We excuse our sins. We blame somebody else for causing them. All of those actions are missing the mark. If I don't embrace it without excuse, this is me. I'm opposition. I'm in opposition to God in this behavior. I've missed the mark. There's no room for fudging. And the way we get there, and the reason we say say those things is because of self-deception. I have deceived myself about myself, but also about God. Now, the devil in the world, you say, well, it's the world, it's the devil, it's demons. No, those things might encourage or entice or tempt disobedience. But each of us bears our own responsibility for our sin. Your spouse didn't cause your attitude. That's you. 
Your boss didn't make you sin. Mm -mm, That's you. And if we're going to not miss the mark, we own responsibility in every instance. Now, a lot of times we all say, oh, everybody sins. But the way we say that is to comfort us in our disobedience, don't we? Well, I mean, come on, everybody sins. But that tells you we've missed the mark. Because if I'm using the fact that you do something wrong to make me feel better about doing something wrong, I don't understand wrong. I don't understand sin. I don't understand missing the mark. Because you know what? It is about nobody but me. But there is a solution. There is a solution for our sin. At verse 9. But if we confess. And confess really means admit. Our sins to him. To God. He is faithful. And just. Don't miss those words. To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us. From all our wickedness. Confessing just means owning our evil, accepting responsibility. Not diminishing it, not minimizing it, not excusing it, not explaining it, not justifying, saying, I'm dead wrong. Will you help? I think that's what happens when we're born again. You may not remember the precise moment, but many of you do. And at that moment, God showed you sin in yourself. And you weren't doing any excusing, justifying, blaming, were you? You just said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's hitting the mark. That's hitting the mark. Initially, we confess our sins to receive salvation... But we continue confessing to maintain our relationship with God. It's like a married couple. You continually apologize. Doesn't mean that that one of the parties is going to divorce and leave the marriage. But you want to keep the marriage intimate and close. So you apologize and you're granted forgiveness. But understand this again. Let me say again. God does not overlook our sins. You know, we've made this sort of American cultural Christian. Oh, God, just he forgives everybody, so just do whatever you want. Mm-mm. We, we, that's missing the mark. God does not ever overlook any sin. He can't. Because his character is pure, holy, and just. Which disallow him to just overlook Anything. He can only forgive and cleanse our sins because his son died for those same specific sins. Do you realize that? It wasn't something Jesus did. He said, now God, would you just forgive everybody? No, no. Specific. He identified with you. Before you were ever born. And that included. Your sins. Now John has a warning for those who will not honestly admit their sin. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned. Or minimize it or justify it or excuse it or explain it away. We are calling God a liar. And showing that his word has no place in our hearts. There's no half measure steps here, is there? are there? It's amazing how powerful these two verses are. But they're two verses that we've heard all our lives. Anybody that ever went to Sunday school heard them. But when you stop and dive into it, these are deep waters, aren't they? When we do confess, which means I really admit, I'm not giving any excuses, then we're forgiven for both past and future. And we're cleansed, continually cleansed. John 2, 1. My dear children, I'm writing this to you 
so that you will not sin. See, if you understand this sin and the grace it took to forgive you, you're not going to be shallow and and foolish about sin. You're not going to be flippant about it. It's too serious. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Now, the word advocate, is a, that's a Greek word, parakletos. And what it means is um, one who comes alongside. It's the same word as you read in John 14 that's given to the Holy Spirit. And it's translated comforter, it's translated counselor, it's translated advocate. You say, well, that sounds like a lawyer. Exactly. Exactly. And look what it says. Who pleads our case before the Father. Who asks God to offer us forgiveness, to not bring judgment. He is Jesus the Christ who is truly righteous. Now, when Jesus pleads your case, what do you think he does? You think he says, well, you know him. He's not so bad. He has a good heart. You think that's what he says? He has some good traits. His sins aren't as bad as somebody else's. You think that's what he says? It's interesting how that's how we argue about these things, isn't it? It's not the way he... That's not the way Jesus pleads our case. You know what he says? I died for this one. That's all he says. I died for this one. You want him to say that for you? I died for this one, Father. He's free. She's free. 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the sacrifice that atones. Greek word there, helasmos, for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Now, now the Greek word that's behind the word translated atones, I don't think atones is the best translation. And some of you have other, other translations of the Bible, and it says propitiation. That's a better translation. It's a more accurate translation. The word atone means to reconcile by covering something. It's a Hebrew word, kipper. And I know we have some people that um, are Jewish in their heritage. And, and I've been to Israel a couple of times, Leanne and I and some people from the church. And the men wear a kippah. You know what it is? It's a covering on their head. And so it means covering. Yom Kippur. Covering. But propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Covering is just get it out of his sight. No, that's not what happened. Jesus bore The punishment, the wrath, the pain, the suffering do the sin. So the wrath of God could be turned. But it was turned because it was absorbed. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice. Justice says that every offense gets punished fully. Thus appeasing his holy wrath against a believer's sins. Now Jesus offered the only sacrifice. It says not our sins only but the sins of the world. Jesus' death is the only sacrifice that will be acceptable for the sins of the world. But each person receives that forgiveness. Not corporately. Individually. And personally. Have your sins been forgiven? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you know this? Have you been cleansed of wickedness, of unrighteousness? The translation says wickedness. The Bible's real straight, isn't it? 
You know, and this idea that, well, I've been forgiven so I can still sin. I can do what I want to do. I can live immorally. That doesn't make any sense. Because once you've been clean, you don't want to be dirty anymore. I was a dirty kid. I don't mean that morally. I'm saying as a kid, I was filthy. And, you know, we lived in the day where your mother saw you in the morning and she saw you at night. She said, I don't know how you get so dirty. I'd have on blue jeans. My blue jeans would be filthy and my skin would be filthy through the blue jeans. And it would take some scrubbing to get me clean. Now, in me, I wanted to get dirty again the next day. But spiritually speaking, if we've ever been scrubbed clean, and especially if you know the sin you were immersed in, you don't want any part of that anymore. You don't find that appealing. A third belief. Christians are adopted by God and live in relationship with Him forever. 1 John 1, 3, and 4. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship. The word fellowship there is koinonia with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This word fellowship, Greek word koinonia. I mean, how many of us grew up in churches with fellowship suppers? I did. What did that mean? You got to eat. So unfortunately, we have boiled down a powerful word to mean covered dish suppers. It's not what it means at all. You may happen to eat, but what fellowship means is that we have a mutual participation in a common cause and a shared life. We share together in the death of Jesus Christ. And it binds us into joyful relationship. If you're one of these freelance Christians, you're just missing the boat. When we have something so powerful to share, it binds us, doesn't it? Are you involved with some other people? Are you in partnership, in communion? Are you sharing life together? That's, that's, all those are synonyms for this term. Do we share something together? Jesus Christ, our Savior. Have you noticed that when you meet a Christian, you can immediately connect? Let me tell you what. This commonality of unity in Christ transcends race, color, education, um, economic level. If you notice those things and those things are more important to you than whether somebody knows Christ, you're missing something. All this racial division, this this, uh, economic division, this educational division makes no sense for Christians. Because we have something so deep together transcends any of those other divisions. Is that how you live? John wanted his readers and us to experience joyful fellowship of eternal life with other believers and with the Father and with the Son. At verse 5, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And that light symbolizes knowledge, but also purity. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing truth. That's truth about yourself. 
You see what I'm saying? If you're claiming, I know God, and you're living in this shadowy existence, not white, not black, kind of grayed out, you're lying. You're not living in the truth. That's, is that what it says? So where am I living? If God's light, then people who are walking in darkness are not, cannot be living in relationship with Him. Well, maybe they have sin. Then if so, they're completely miserable. Christians aren't perfect, but you know what? They're leaning toward perfection. Completely different attitude. 1 John 1, 7. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That light is that indwelling Holy Spirit that purifies us. And we have fellowship because we share love for, for Christ. So we're cleansed both before and after we're saved. But, but it doesn't stop there. See, God's attitude toward us is displayed not only through forgiveness, but also through adoption into his family. 1 John 3. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that is what we are. Now see, God could have been a God, a distant God, who may have forgiven us. You know, the world's religions don't even believe you know whether God, whether you're forgiven till the end. And the God is distant and foreboding. Our God not only forgave us, he adopted us into his family. He could have remained distant, couldn't he? He could have just said, okay, I'll give you a pass on this. But don't come near me. He doesn't. He brings us into his family now and forever. He loves us. He regards us as his children. We are important to him. We're not merely the object of his mercy. We're the objects of his love. The subject of his love. I want you to feel that a little bit. Not merely the object of his mercy, the subject of his love. You know what that feels like, don't you? It's not where you grew up, though, was it? But the people who belong to this world, they don't recognize that we're God's children. So don't expect everybody to, to appreciate that in you. Because they don't know him. See, you, you've been changed. You're a new person. You may have even remembered. It may have not been long ago. You went to work. You thought everybody would celebrate with you. They act like they didn't see anything. Or they criticized you. Something you were just putting on. They didn't treat you specially. They didn't even show you respect. Here's why. If you're different, that leads them, it leaves them in a bad place. If it's possible for a person to change, it leaves them in a hopeless spot because they have to do something about where they're standing. They have to reevaluate their lives. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, you're already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. In his second coming. You know I think I want it to be soon. But now that I got a grandchild. A grand boy on the way. I, I hope he delays a little while. That's right. But we do know. That we will be like him. For we will see him. As he really is. What's that doing you? And I would say that. He has a glorified body. We receive glorified bodies. I don't know what that means. You know, do, do I stay 58? Do I get all my hair back? You know what I believe? I don't know 
it doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I know that I do know this. When we encounter Jesus Christ, we will have no concern, perhaps no self-awareness. We will be consumed with the object of our affection. And we won't be trying to check ourselves out like we do now. We'll be focused outward as we go upward. When Jesus returns to earth to gather us, we do receive these glorified bodies. And they'll be like his. They won't age. They won't grow ill. They won't suffer. They won't die. And in eternity, we never sin. We won't experience sorrow. We won't suffer. Verse 3. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure. See, this, this, this Christianity in our culture isn't Christianity at all. I know I'm forgiven so I can live disobediently. That doesn't even make any sense. That's like me saying, well, I love, I, I love my wife, so now, since she loves me, now I can be unfaithful. That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? We will live holy lives in expectation of Jesus' return. He's coming back. Are you getting ready? And if, you, if I could tell you when he was coming, it would change the way you would live, wouldn't it? Well, why doesn't it change the way you live, you're living? Because at one point, you'll meet him. Since we're children of God, we know he, he hears our voices. He cares about our concerns. He answers our prayers. 1 John 5. Verse 14. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. Did you see that? Did it say anything we want? No, that's a prayer according to his will. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for if it's in his will. But see, prayer isn't for you to give, place your order with God. Prayer is, prayer is an opportunity to align yourself with him. So you're transformed, therefore you want what he wills. That's being transformed. That's Romans 12 too. So then when, when we've been aligned with him, we pray prayers he wants to answer. In fact, we don't want any prayers answered that is not what he wants. Then John points out a startling exception. If you see a Christian brother or sister sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. And God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin. But not every sin leads to death. Now John doesn't identify this particular sin. Well, did this startle you? Does this passage, is this passage new and surprising to you? It says plainly, don't pray for people who are committing this sin unto death because God's not forgiven them. You know what God's going to do? He's going to take them out. That's what this passage says, clearly. Now, we don't know what the sin is. It's likely some willful, continuous, unrepentant sin for which God will end this person's life. God will purify his church sometimes by removing someone who's deliberately disobeying. The effect he's having on the church, the effect he's having on others. That's what it means. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts? Acts chapter 5, same thing. Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They were Christians. But they sold some property and then they gave it to the church. But they kept a little in the bank. But they said they gave it all. They didn't have to. They were under no obligation. But because they lied before the church, they were taken out. They didn't lose their salvation. They did lose their earthly life. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. 
And he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God. Because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God. And he is eternal life. And then he closes with this. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Our faith is not merely a collection of beliefs. It's a living, vibrant relationship with God and his son. But it does contain A collection of beliefs. Now we want to join together in singing. Don't run for the doors. Your cars will remain. We want to join together in singing what we believe. Led by our worship team.
So let me ask you, Brookwood Church, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And He's coming back again. Do you believe that? Do you believe these essential facts of the faith? And if you do, what difference do these beliefs make in your life? We'll have our counselors at the front. They can come forward now. Maybe for the first time you understood you want to pray with someone. Perhaps you say, well, I won't, will they still pray for me. I'm ill and will anoint with oil. You know, I believe that God's a miracle-working God. He can always heal according to His will. But you know why we don't see more miracles? We don't ask. God gets glory when His people call on His name, make requests, and He supplies. And then we glorify His name. You know, three Sundays ago, we anointed and prayed for those that were ill. A nurse in our church, Kelly Featheringill, had a cancerous-looking mass on her aorta, her vena cava, and her spine. They were causing intense pain, blood clots. At one point, rendered her unable to walk. She was in church on July 31st. Her parents urged her to come forward and be anointed with oil. She was a little bit self-conscious, but she came. and One of the pastors prayed for her and anointed with oil. She was to go back. There was some discussion and debate about what this tumor really was and she was to have exploratory surgery on August 15th she went in for a follow up MRI before the surgery and there was no mass boy I want our church to be a church that believes God as a miracle working God But the way we know that he is, is we ask and we watch and we glorify his answers. Father God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, give us the faith to to call down your power to our midst. Lord, give us the courage to ask bold prayers and Lord would you respond and answer and deliver that we might praise the name of your son amen thank you for coming